Chapter 14 of The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chapter 14 The End of the Tether The deep, interminable hoot of the steam whistle had, in its grave, vibrating note, something intolerable, which sent a slight shudder down Mr. Van Wick's back. It was the early afternoon, the Safala was leaving Batu Beru for Pangu, the next place of call. She swung in the stream, scantily attended by a few canoes, and, gliding on the broad river, became lost to view from the Van Wyck bungalow. Its owner had not gone this time to see her off. Generally he came down to the wharf, exchanged a few words with the bridge while she cast off, and waved his hand to Captain Wiley at the last moment. This day he did not even go so far as the balustrade of the veranda. He couldn't see me if I did, he said to himself. I wonder whether he can make out the house at all. And this thought somehow made him feel more alone than he had ever felt for all these years. What was it? Six or seven? Seven. A long time. He sat on the veranda with a closed book on his knee and, as it were, looked out upon his solitude, as if the fact of Captain Wally's blindness had opened his eyes to his own. There were many sorts of heartaches and troubles, and there was no place where they could not find a man out. And he felt ashamed, as though he had for six years behaved like a peevish boy. His thought followed the Safala on her way. On the spur of the moment he had acted impulsively, turning to the thing most pressing. And what else could he have done? Later on he should see. It seemed necessary that he should come out into the world, for a time at least. He had money, something could be arranged, he would grudge no time, no trouble, no loss of his solitude. It weighed on him now, and Captain Wally appeared to him as he had sat shading his eyes, as if, being deceived in the trust of his faith, he were beyond all the good and evil that can be wrought by the hands of men. Mr. Van Wick's thoughts followed the Safala down the river, winding about through the belt of the coast forest, between the buttressed shafts of the big trees, through the mangrove strip and over the bar. The ship crossed it easily in broad daylight, piloted as it happened by Mr. Stern, who took the watch from four to six, and then went below to hug himself with delight at the prospect of being virtually employed by a rich man like Mr. Van Wick. He could not see how any hitch could occur now. He did not seem able to get over the feeling of being fixed up at last. From six to eight in the course of duty, the serang looked alone after the ship. She had a clear road before her now till about three in the morning, when she would close with the Pangu group. At eight, Mr. Stern came out cheerily to take charge again till midnight. At ten, he was still chirruping and humming to himself on the bridge, and about that time Mr. Van Wick's thought abandoned the Safala. Mr. Van Wick had fallen asleep at last. Massey, blocking the engine-room companion, jerked himself into his tweed jacket surlily, while the second waited with a scowl. "'Oh, you came out, you sot! Well, what have you got to say for yourself?' He had been in charge of the engines till then. A sombre fury darkened his mind a hot anger against the ship, against the facts of life, against the men for their cheating, against himself too, because of an inward tremor of his heart. An incomprehensible growl answered him. 
What, can't you open your mouth now? You yelp out your infernal rot loud enough when you're drunk. What do you mean by abusing people in that way, you useless old boozer, you? Can't help it. Don't remember anything about it. You shouldn't listen. You dare to tell me? What do you mean by going on a drunk like this? Don't ask me. Sick of the damn boilers, you would be. Sick of life. I wish you were dead then. You've made me sick of you. Don't you remember the uproar you made last night, you miserable old soaker? No, I don't. Don't want to. Drink is drink. I wonder what prevents me from kicking you out. What do you want here? Relieve you. You've been long enough down there, George. Don't you George me, you tippling old rascal, you. If I were to die tomorrow, you would starve. Remember that. Say, Mr. Massey. Mr. Massey, repeated the other stolidly. Dishevelled with dull bloodshot eyes, a snuffy, grimy shirt, greasy trousers, naked feet thrust into ragged slippers, he bolted in head down directly Massey had made way for him. The chief engineer looked around. The deck was empty as far as the taffrail. All the native passengers had left in Batu Beiru this time and no others had joined. The dial of the patent log tinkled periodically in the dark at the end of the ship. It was a dead calm and under the clouded sky, through the still air that seemed to cling warm with a seaweed smell to a slim hull, on a sea of sombre grey and unwrinkled, the ship moved on an even keel as if floating detached in empty space. But Mr Massey slapped his forehead tottered a little, caught hold of a belaying pin at the foot of the mast. "'I shall go mad,' he muttered, walking across the deck unsteadily. A shovel was scraping loose coal down below. A fire door clanged. Stern on the bridge began whistling a new tune. Captain Wally, sitting on the couch, awake and fully dressed, heard the door of his cabin open. He did not move in the least, waiting to recognise the voice with an appalling strain of prudence. A bulkhead lamp blazed on the white paint, the crimson plush, the brown varnish of mahogany tops. The white wood packing case under the bed place had remained unopened for three years now, as though Captain Wally had felt that, after the fair maid was gone, there could be no abiding place on earth for his affections. His hands rested on his knees, his handsome head with big eyebrows presented a rigid profile to the doorway. The expected voice spoke out at last. Once more, then, what am I to call you? Ha, ah, Massey, again. The weariness of it crushed his heart, and the pain of shame was almost more than he could bear without crying out. Well, is it to be partners still? You don't know what you ask. I know what I want. Massey stepped in and closed the door, and I'm going to have to try for it with you once more. His whine was half persuasive, half menacing. For it's no manner of use to tell me that you're poor. You don't spend anything on yourself, that's true enough, but there's another name for that. You think you're going to have what you want out of me for three years and then cast me off without hearing what I think of you. You think I would have submitted to your heirs if I'd known you had only a beggarly five hundred pounds in the world? You ought to have told me. Perhaps, said Captain Wally, bowing his head, and yet it has saved you. Massey laughed scornfully. I've told you often enough since. And I don't believe you now. 
when I think how I let you lord it over my ship. Do you remember how you used to bully-rag me about my coat and your bridge? It was in his way, his bridge. And I won't be a party to this, and I couldn't think of doing that. Honest man. And now it all comes out. I'm poor and I can't. I've only this five hundred in the world. He contemplated the immobility of Captain Wally that seemed to present an unconquerable obstacle in his path. His face took a mournful cast. You're a hard man. Enough, said Captain Wally, turning upon him. You shall get nothing from me because I have nothing of mine to give away now. Tell that to the Marines. Mr. Massey, going out, looked back once, then the door closed, and Captain Wally, alone, sat as still as before. He had nothing of his own, even his past of honour, of truth, of just pride, was gone. All his spotless life had fallen into the abyss. He had said his last good-bye to it. But what belonged to her, that he meant to save. Only a little money. He would take it to her in his own hands, this last gift of a man that had lasted too long. And an immense and fierce impulse, the very passion of paternity, flamed up with all the unquenched vigour of his worthless life in a desire to see her face. Just across the deck, Massey had gone straight to his cabin, struck a light, and hunted up the note of the dreamed number whose figures had flamed up also with the fierceness of another passion. He must contrive somehow not to miss a drawing. That number meant something. But what expedient could he contrive to keep himself going? A wretched miser, he mumbled. If Mr. Stern could at no time have told him anything new about his partner, he could have told Mr. Stern that another use could be made of a man's affliction than just to kick him out and thus defer the term of a difficult payment for a year. To keep the secret of the affliction and induce him to stay was a better move. If without means, he would be anxious to remain, and that settled the question of refunding him his share. He did not know exactly how much Captain Wally was disabled, but if it so happened that he put his ship ashore somewhere for good and all, it was not the owner's fault, was it? He was not obliged to know that there was anything wrong. But probably nobody would raise such a point, and the ship was fully insured. He had had enough self-restraint to pay up the premiums. But this was not all. He could not believe Captain Wally to be so confoundedly destitute as not to have some more money put away somewhere. If he, Massey, could get hold of it, that would pay for the boilers, and everything went on as before. And if she got lost in the end, so much the better. He hated her. He loathed the troubles that took his mind off the chances of fortune. He wished her at the bottom of the sea, and the insurance money in his pocket. And as, baffled, he left Captain Wally's cabin, he enveloped in the same hatred the ship with the worn-out boilers, and the man with the dimmed eyes. And our conduct, after all, is so much a matter of outside suggestion that had it not been for his Jack's drunken gabble, he would have, there and then, had it out with this miserable man who would neither help nor stay nor yet lose the ship. The old fraud. He longed to kick him out, but he restrained himself. Time enough for that, when he liked. There was a fearful new thought put into his head. Wasn't he up to it, after all? How that beast Jack had raved. Find a safe trick to get rid of her. Well, Jack was not so far wrong. A very clever trick had occurred to him. Aye, but what of the risk? 
A feeling of pride, the pride of superiority to common prejudices, crept into his breast, made his heart beat fast, his mouth turned dry. Not everybody would dare, but he was massy, and he was up to it. Six bells were struck on deck. Eleven. He drank a glass of water and sat down for ten minutes or so to calm himself. Then he got out of his chest a small bull's eye lantern of his own and lit it. Almost opposite his berth, across the narrow passage under the bridge, there was, in the iron deck structure covering the stokehold fiddle and the boiler space, a storeroom with iron sides, iron roof, iron-plated floor, too, on account of the heat below. All sorts of rubbish was shot there. It had a mound of scrap iron in a corner, rows of empty oil cans, sacks of cotton waste with a heap of charcoal, a deck forge, fragments of an old hen coop, winch covers all in rags, remnants of lamps and a brown felt hat, discarded by a dead man now on a fever on the Brazil coast, who had been once mate of the Cephala, had remained for years, jammed forcibly behind a length of burst copper pipe, flung at some time or other out of the engine room. A complete and imperious blackness pervaded that cafarnum of forgotten things. A small shaft of light from Mr. Massey's bullseye fell slanting right through it. His coat was unbuttoned. He shot the bolt of the door, there was no other opening, and, squatting before the scrap heap, began to pack his pockets with pieces of iron. He packed them carefully, as if the rusty nuts, the broken bolts, the links of cargo chain had been so much gold he had that one chance to carry away. He packed his side pockets till they bulged, the breast pocket, the pockets inside. He turned over the pieces, some he rejected. A small mist of powdered rust began to rise about his busy hands. Mr. Massey knew something of the scientific basis of his clever trick. If you want to deflect the magnetic needle of a ship's compass, soft iron is the best. Likewise, many small pieces in the pockets of a jacket would have more effect than a few large ones, because in that way you obtain a greater amount of surface for weight in your iron, and it's surface that tells. He slipped out swiftly. Two strides sufficed, and in his cabin he perceived that his hands were all red, red with rust. It disconcerted him, as though he had found them covered with blood. He looked himself over hastily. Why, his trousers too. He had been rubbing his rusty palms on his legs. He tore off the waistband button in his haste, brushed his coat, washed his hands. Then the air of guilt left him, and he sat down to wait. He sat bolt upright and waited with iron in his chair. He had a hard, lumpy bulk against each hip, felt the scrappy iron in his pockets touch his ribs at every breath, the downward drag of all these pounds hanging upon his shoulders. He looked very dull, too, sitting idle there, and his yellow face with motionless black eyes had something passive and sad in its quietness. When he heard eight bells struck above his head, he rose and made ready to go out. His movements seemed aimless. His lower lip had dropped a little. His eyes roamed about the cabin, and the tremendous tension of his will had robbed them of every vestige of intelligence. With the last stroke of the bell, the serang appeared noiselessly on the bridge to relieve the mate. Stern overflowed with good nature, since he had nothing more to desire. "'Got your eyes well open yet, serang? It's middling dark. I'll wait till you get your sight properly.' The old Malay murmured, looked up with his worn eyes, sidled away into the light of the binnacle, and, crossing his hands behind his back, fixed his eyes on the compass card.
You'll have to keep a good look out ahead for land, about half past three. It's fairly clear, though. You have looked in on the captain as you came along, eh? He knows the time? Well, then, I'm off. At the foot of the ladder he stood aside for the captain. He watched him go up with an even, certain tread and remained thoughtful for a moment. It's funny, he said to himself, but you can never tell whether that man has seen you or not. He might have heard me breathe this time. He was a wonderful man when all was said and done. They said he had had a name in his day. Mr Stern could well believe it. And he concluded serenely that Captain Wally must be able to see people more or less, as himself just now, for instance. But not being certain of anybody, had to keep up that unnoticing silence of manner for fear of giving himself away. Mr Stern was a shrewd guesser. This necessity of every moment brought home to Captain Wally's heart the humiliation of his falsehood. He had drifted into it from paternal love, from incredulity, from boundless trust in divine justice meted out to men's feelings on this earth. He would give his poor Ivy the benefit of another month's work. Perhaps the affliction was only temporary. Surely God would not rob his child of his power to help and cast him naked into a night without end. He had courted every hope, and when the evidence of his misfortune was stronger than hope, he tried not to believe the manifest thing. In vain, in the steadily darkening universe, a sinister clearness fell upon his ideas. In the illuminating moments of suffering, he saw life, men, all things, the whole earth with all her burden of created nature as he had never seen them before. Sometimes he was seized with a sudden vertigo and an overwhelming terror, and then the image of his daughter appeared. Her, too, he had never seen so clearly before. Was it possible that he should ever be unable to do anything whatever for her, nothing, and not see her any more, never? Why? The punishment was too great for a little presumption, for a little pride and at last he came to cling to his deception with a fierce determination to carry it out to the end, to save her money intact and behold her once more with his own eyes. Afterwards, what? The idea of suicide was revolting to the vigour of his manhood. He had prayed for death till the prayers had stuck in his throat. All the days of his life he had prayed for daily bread and not to be led into temptation in a childlike humility of spirit. Did words mean anything? Whence did the gift of speech come? The violent beating of his heart reverberated in his head, seemed to shake his brain to pieces. He sat down heavily in the deck chair to keep the pretense of his watch. The night was dark. All the nights were dark now. Sarang, he said half aloud. Adatuan, I am here. There are clouds in the sky. There are twan. Let her be steered straight, north. She's going north, Twan. The serang stepped back. Captain Wally recognised Massey's footfalls on the bridge. The engineer walked over to port and returned, passing behind the chair several times. Captain Wally detected an unusual character as of prudent care in this prowling. The near presence of that man brought with it always a recrudescence of moral suffering for Captain Wally. It was not remorse. After all, he had done nothing but good to the poor devil. 
there was also a sense of danger, the necessity of a greater care. Massey stopped and said, So you still say you must go? I must, indeed. And you couldn't at least leave the money for a term of years? Impossible. Can't trust it with me without your care, eh? Captain Wally remained silent. Massey sighed deeply over the back of the chair. It would just do to save me, he said in a tremulous voice. I've saved you once. The chief engineer took off his coat with careful movements and proceeded to feel for the brass hook screwed into the wooden stanchion. For this purpose he placed himself right in front of the binnacle, thus hiding completely the compass card from the quartermaster at the wheel. Tuan, the lascar at last murmured softly, meaning to let the white man know that he could not see to steer. Mr. Massey had accomplished his purpose. The coat was hanging from the nail within six inches of the binnacle, and directly he had stepped aside, the quartermaster, a middle-aged, pock-marked Sumatra Malay, almost as dark as a negro, perceived with amazement that in that short time, in this smooth water, with no wind at all, the ship had gone swinging far out of her course. He had never known a getaway like this before. With a slight grunt of astonishment, he turned the wheel hastily to bring her head back north, which was the course. The grinding of the steering chains, the chiding murmurs of the serang who had come over to the wheel, made a slight stir which attracted Captain Wally's anxious attention. He said, take better care. Then everything settled to the usual quiet on the bridge. Mr. Massey had disappeared. But the iron in the pockets of the coat had done its work, and the sofala, heading north by the compass, made untrue by this simple device, was no longer making a safe course for Pangu Bay. The hiss of water parted by her stem, the throb of her engines, all the sounds of her faithful and laborious life went on uninterrupted in the great calm of the sea, joining on all sides the motionless layer of cloud over the sky. A gentle stillness as vast as the world seemed to wait upon her path, enveloping her lovingly in a supreme caress. Mr. Massey thought there could be no better night for an arranged shipwreck. Run up high and dry on one of the reefs east of Pangu, wait for daylight, hole in the bottom, out boats, Pangu Bay, same evening, that's about it. As soon as she touched, he would hasten on the bridge, get hold of the coat, nobody would notice in the dark, and shake it upside down over the side, or even fling it into the sea. A detail, who could guess? Coat had been seen hanging there from that hook hundreds of times. Nevertheless, when he sat down on the lower step of the bridge ladder, his knees knocked together a little. The waiting part was the worst of it. At times he would begin to pant quickly, as though he had been running, and then breathe largely, swelling with the intimate sense of a mastered fate. Now and then he would hear the shuffle of the serang's bare feet up there. Quiet, low voices would exchange a few words and lapse almost at once into silence. Tell me directly you see any land, serang. Yes, Tuan, not yet. No, not yet, Captain Wiley would agree. The ship had been the best friend of his decline. He had sent all the money he had made by and in the Safala to his daughter. His thought lingered on the name. How often he and his wife had talked over the cot of the child in the big stern cabin of the Condor. She would grow up, she would marry, she would love them, 
They would live near her and look at her happiness. It would go on without end. Well, his wife was dead to the child he had given all he had to give. He wished he could come near her, see her, see her face once, live in the sound of her voice. That could make the darkness of the living grave ready for him supportable. He had been starved of love too long. He imagined her tenderness. The serang had been peering forward and now and then glancing at the chair. He fidgeted restlessly and suddenly burst out close to Captain Wally. Tuan, do you see anything of the land? The alarmed voice brought Captain Wally to his feet at once. He? See? And at the question, the curse of his blindness seemed to fall on him with a hundredfold force. What's the time? he cried. Half past three, Tuan. We are close. You must see. Look, I say, look. Mr. Massey, awakened by the sudden sound of talking from a short doze on the lowest step, wondered why he was there. Ah! A faintness came over him. It is one thing to sow the seed of an accident, and another to see the monstrous fruit hanging over your head ready to fall in the sound of agitated voices. There's no danger, he muttered thickly. The horror of incertitude had seized upon Captain Wally, the miserable mistrust of men, of things, of the very earth. He had steered that very course thirty-six times by the same compass. If anything was certain in the world, it was its absolute, unerring correctness. Then what had happened? Did the serang lie? Why lie? Why? Was he going blind too? Is there a mist? Look low on the water. Look down, I say. Tuan, there's no mist. See for yourself. Captain Wally steadied the trembling of his limb by an effort. Should he stop the engines at once and give himself away? A gust of irresolution swayed all sorts of bizarre notions in his mind. The unusual had come, and he was not fit to deal with it. In this passage of inexpressible anguish he saw her face, the face of a young girl, with an amazing strength of illusion. No, he must not give himself away after having gone so far for her sake. You steered the course? You made it? Speak the truth. The Artuan, on the course now, look. Captain Wally strode to the binnacle, which to him made such a dim spot of light in an infinity of shapeless shadow. By bending his face right down to the glass, he had been able before. Having to stoop so low, he put out instinctively his arm to where he knew there was a stanchion to steady himself against. His hand closed on something that was not wood, but cloth. The slight pull adding to the weight, the loop broke, and Mr. Massey's coat, falling, struck the deck heavily with a dull thump, accompanied by a lot of clicks. What's this? Captain Wally fell on his knees, with groping hands extended in a frank gesture of blindness. They trembled, these hands, feeling for the truth. He saw it. Iron near the compass. Wrong course. Wrecker. His ship. Oh, no. Not that. "'Jump and stop her!' he roared out in a voice not his own. He ran himself, hands forward, a blind man, and while the clanging of the gong echoed still all over the ship, she seemed to butt full tilt into the side of a mountain. It was low water along the north side of the strait. Mr. Massey had not reckoned on that. Instead of running aground for half her length, the cephala butted the sheer ridge of a stone reef which would have been awash at high water.' This made this shock absolutely terrific. Everybody in the ship that was standing was thrown down headlong. The shaken rigging made a great rattling to the very trucks. 
all the lights went out. Several chain guys snapping clattered against the funnel. There were crashes, pings of parted wire ropes, splintering sounds, loud cracks. The masthead lamp flew over the bows and all the doors about the deck began to bang heavily. Then, after having hit, she rebounded, hit the second time, the very same spot like a battering ram. This completed the havoc. The funnel, with all the guys gone, fell over with a hollow sound of thunder, smashing the wheel to bits, crushing the frame of the awnings, breaking the lockers, filling the bridge with a mass of splinters, sticks and broken wood. Captain Wally picked himself up and stood knee-deep in wreckage, torn, bleeding, knowing the nature of the danger he had escaped mostly by the sound and holding Mr Massey's coat in his arms. By this time stern, he had been flung out of his bunk, had set the engines astern. They worked for a few turns, then a voice bawled out, Get out of the damned engine room, Jack! And they stopped, but the ship had gone clear of the reef and lay still with a heavy cloud of steam issuing from the broken deck pipes and vanishing in wispy shapes into the night. Notwithstanding the suddenness of the disaster, there was no shouting, as if the very violence of the shock had half-stunned the shadowy lot of people swaying here and there about her decks. The voice of the serang pronounced distinctly above the confused murmurs, Eight fathom! He had heaved the lead. Mr Stern cried out next in a strained pitch, Where the devil has she got to? Where are we? Captain Wally replied in a calm bass, Amongst the reefs to the eastward. You know it, sir, then she will never get out again. She will be sunk in five minutes. Boat stern, even one will save you all in this calm. The Chinaman stokers went in a disorderly rush for the port boats. Nobody tried to check them. The Malays, after a moment of confusion, became quiet, and Mr Stern showed a good countenance. Captain Wally had not moved. His thoughts were darker than this night in which he had lost his first ship. He made me lose a ship. Another tall figure standing before him amongst the litter of the smash of the bridge whispered insanely, Say nothing of it. Massey stumbled closer. Captain Wally heard the chattering of his teeth. I have the coat. Throw it down and come along, urged the chattering voice. Bop out! You will get fifteen years for this. Mr. Massey had lost his voice. His speech was a mere dry rustling in his throat. Have mercy. Had you had any when you made me lose my ship? Mr. Massey, you shall get fifteen years for this. I wanted money, money, my own money. I will give you some money. Take half of it. You love money yourself. There's a justice. Massey made an awful effort and in a strange half-choked utterance. You blind devil, it's you that drove me to it. Captain Wally, hugging the coat to his breast, made no sound. The light had ebbed forever from the world. Let everything go. But this man should not escape scot-free. Stern's voice commanded, Lower away! The blocks rattled. Now then, he cried, over with you. This way, you Jack here, Mr Massey. Mr Massey, Captain, quick, sir, let's get... I shall go to prison for trying to cheat the insurance, but you'll get exposed, you honest man who has been cheating me. You are poor, aren't you? You have nothing but the five hundred pounds. Well, you have nothing at all now. The ship's lost and the insurance won't be paid. Captain Wally did not move. True, Ivy's money gone in this wreck. Again he had a flash of insight. He was indeed at the end of his tether. 
urgent voices cried out together alongside. Massey did not seem able to tear himself away from the bridge. He chattered and hissed despairingly. Give it up to me. Give it up. No, said Captain Wally. I could not give it up. You had better go. Don't wait, man, if you want to live. She's settling down by the head fast. No, I shall keep it, but I shall stay on board. Massey did not seem to understand, but the love of life awakened suddenly drove him away from the bridge. Captain Wally laid the coat down and stumbled amongst the heaps of wreckage to the side. Is Mr. Massey with you? he called out into the night. Stern from the boat shouted, Yes, we've got him. Come along, sir. It's madness to stay longer. Captain Wally felt along the rail carefully and, without a word, cast off the painter. They were expecting him still down there. They were waiting till a voice suddenly exclaimed, We are adrift. Shove off. Captain Wally, leap. Pull up a little. Leap. You can swim. In that old heart, in that vigorous body, there was that nothing should be wanting, a horror of death that apparently could not be overcome by the horror of blindness. But after all, for Ivy, he had carried his point, walking in his darkness to the very verge of a crime. God had not listened to his prayers. The light had finished ebbing out of the world, not a glimmer. It was a dark waste, but it was unseemly that a wally who had gone so far to carry a point should continue to live. He must pay the price. Leap as far as you can, sir. We will pick you up. They did not hear him answer, but their shouting seemed to remind him of something. He groped his way back and sought for Mr. Massey's coat. He could swim, indeed. People sucked down by the whirlpool of a sinking ship do come up sometimes to the surface, and it was unseemly that a wally, who had made up his mind to die, should be beguiled by chance into a struggle. He would put all these pieces of iron into his own pockets. They, looking from the boat, saw the Sephala, a black mass upon a black sea, lying still at an appalling cant. No sound came from her. Then, with a great bizarre shuffling noise, as if the boilers had broken through the bulkheads, and with a faint muffled detonation where the ship had been, there appeared for a moment something standing upright and narrow, like a rock out of the sea, and then that too disappeared. When the Sophala failed to come back to Batu Beru at the proper time, Mr. Van Wyck understood at once that he would never see her any more. But he did not know what had happened till some months afterwards when, in a native craft lent him by his sultan, he had made his way to the Safala's port of registry, where already her existence and the official inquiry into her loss was beginning to be forgotten. It had not been a very remarkable or interesting case, except for the fact that the captain had gone down with his sinking ship. It was the only life lost and Mr. Van Wyck would not have been able to learn any details had it not been for Stern, whom he met one day on the quay near the bridge over the creek, almost on the very spot where Captain Wally, to preserve his daughter's five hundred pounds intact, had turned to get a sampan which would take him on board the Sofala. From afar, Mr. Van Wyck saw Stern blink straight at him and raise his hand to his hat. They drew into the shade of a building, it was a bank, and the mate related how the boat with the crew got into Pangu Bay about six hours after the accident, and how they had lived for a fortnight in a state of destitution before they found an opportunity to get away from that beastly place. The inquiry had exonerated everybody from all blame. The loss of the ship was put down to an unusual set of the current. 
Indeed, it could not have been anything else. There was no other way to account for the ship being set seven miles to the eastward of her position during the middle watch. A piece of bad luck for me, sir. Stern passed his tongue on his lips and glanced aside. I'd lost the advantage of being employed by you, sir. I can never be sorry enough. But here it is, one man's poison, another man's meat. This could not have been handier for Mr. Massey if he had arranged that shipwreck himself, the most timely total loss I've ever heard of. What became of that, Massey? asked Mr. Vanwick. He, sir, <laughs> he would keep on telling me that he meant to buy another ship, but as soon as he had the money in his pocket, he cleared out for Manila by mailboat early in the morning. I gave him chase right aboard, and he told me that he was going to make his fortune dead sure in Manila. I could go to the devil for all he cared. And yet he as good as promised to give me the command if I didn't talk too much. You never said anything, Mr. Van Wick began. Not I, sir. Why should I? I mean to get on, but the dead aren't in my way, said Stern. His eyelids were beating rapidly, then drooped for an instant. Besides, sir, it would have been an awkward business. You made me hold my tongue just a bit too long. Did you know how it was that Captain Wally remained on board? Did he really refuse to leave? Come now, or was it perhaps an accidental... Nothing, Stern interrupted with energy. I tell you, I yelled for him to leap overboard. He simply must have cast off the painter of the boat himself. We all yelled for him. That is, Jack and I. He wouldn't even answer us. The ship was as silent as a grave to the last. And then the boilers fetched away and down she went. Accident, not dead. The game was up, sir, I tell you. This was all that Stern had to say. Mr Van Wick had been, of course, made the guest of the club for a fortnight, and it was there that he met the lawyer in whose office had been signed the agreement between Massey and Captain Wally. Extraordinary old man, he said. He came into my office from nowhere in particular, as you may say, with his five hundred pounds to place, and that engineer fellow following him anxiously, and now he's gone out a little inexplicably, just as he came. I could never understand him quite. There was no mystery at all about that Massey, eh? I wonder whether Wally refused to leave the ship. It would have been foolish. He was blameless, as the court found. Mr Van Wick had known him well, he said, and he could not believe in suicide. Such an act would not have been in character with what he knew of the man. It is my opinion, too, the lawyer agreed. The general theory was that the captain had remained too long on board, trying to save something of importance. Perhaps the chart which would clear him, or else something of value in his cabin. The painter of the boat had come adrift of itself, it was supposed. However, strange to say, some little time before that voyage, poor Wally had called in his office and had left with him a sealed envelope addressed to his daughter, to be forwarded to her in case of his death. Still, it was nothing very unusual, especially in a man of his age. Mr Van Wick shook his head. Captain Wally looked good for a hundred years. Perfectly true, assented the lawyer. The old fellow looked as though he had come into the world full-grown, and with that long beard I could never somehow imagine him either younger or older, don't you know. There was a sense of physical power about that man too, and perhaps that was the secret of that something peculiar in his person which struck everybody who came in contact with him. He looked indestructible by any ordinary means that put an end to the rest of us. 
His deliberate, stately courtesy of manner was full of significance. It was as though he were certain of having plenty of time for everything. Yes, there was something indestructible about him. And the way he talked sometimes, you might have thought he believed it himself. When he called on me last with that letter he wanted me to take charge of, he was not depressed at all. Perhaps a shade more deliberate in his talk and manner, not depressed in the least. Had he a presentiment, I wonder? Perhaps. Still, it seems a miserable end for such a striking figure. Oh yes, it was a miserable end, Mr Van Wick said, with so much fervour that the lawyer looked up at him curiously, and afterwards, after parting with him, he remarked to an acquaintance, Queer person, that Dutch tobacco planter from Batubero, know anything of him? Heaps of money, answered the bank manager. I hear he's going home by the next mail to form a company to take over his estates, another tobacco district thrown open. He's wise, I think. These good times won't last forever. In the southern hemisphere, Captain Wally's daughter had no presentiment of evil when she opened the envelope addressed to her in the lawyer's handwriting. She had received it in the afternoon. All the boarders had gone out, her boys were at school, her husband sat upstairs in his big armchair with a book, thin-faced, wrapped up in rugs to the waist. The house was still and the greyness of a cloudy day lay against the panes of three lofty windows. In a shabby dining room, where a faint cold smell of dishes lingered all the year round, sitting at the end of a long table surrounded by many chairs pushed in with their backs close against the edge of the perpetually laid tablecloth, she read the opening sentence. Most profound regret, painful duty, your father is no more. In accordance with his instructions, fatal casualty, consolation, no blame attached to his memory. Her face was thin, her temples a little sunk under the smooth bands of black hair. Her lips remained resolutely compressed while her dark eyes grew larger till at last, with a low cry, she stood up and instantly stooped to pick up another envelope which had slipped off her knees onto the floor. She tore it open, snatched out the enclosure. My dearest child, it said, I am writing this while I am able yet to write legibly. I am trying hard to save for you all the money that is left. I have only kept it to serve you better. It is yours. It shall not be lost. It shall not be touched. There's five hundred pounds. Of what I have earned, I have kept nothing back till now. For the future, if I live, I must keep back some, a little, to bring me to you. I must come to you. I must see you once more. It is hard to believe that you will ever look on these lines. God seems to have forgotten me. I want to see you, and yet death would be a greater favour. If you ever read these words, I charge you to begin by thanking a God merciful at last, for I shall be dead then, and it will be well. My dear, I am at the end of my tether. The next paragraph began with the words, My sight is going. She read no more that day. The hand holding up the paper to her eyes fell slowly, and her slender figure in a plain black dress walked rigidly to the window. Her eyes were dry, no cry of sorrow or whisper of thanks went up to heaven from her lips. Life had been too hard for all the efforts of his love. It had silenced her emotions. 
But for the first time in all these years, its sting had departed. The carking care of poverty, the meanness of a hard struggle for bread. Even the image of her husband and of her children seemed to glide away from her into grey twilight. It was her father's face alone that she saw, as though he had come to see her, always quiet and big, as she had seen him last, but with something more august and tender in his aspect. She slipped his folded letter between the two buttons of her plain black bodice, and leaning her forehead against a window pane, remained there till dusk, perfectly motionless, giving him all the time she could spare. Gone. Was it possible, my God, was it possible? The blow had come softened by the space of the earth, by the years of absence. There had been whole days when she had not thought of him at all, had no time. But she had loved him. She felt she had loved him, after all. End of chapter 14 End of The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad